Good afternoon, my friends and followers. Welcome to this edition of Law and the Life Live with Patrick McGinn, except we are not live. We are recorded. I'm still having internet issues. As a matter of fact, uh, today while I was in trial, the internet shut down. I got booted out of the trial and had to rejoin. Anyway, I set out to do this live yesterday at 6 p.m. as I usually do on Wednesdays, and at exactly 5.25, the internet decided to go out along with the power. So until they can get my internet issues resolved, I have internet that can't even support one live stream, much less the multiple live streams I usually run on the different platforms. So the next best thing, I'm coming to you in a recorded mode. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready for 2020 to be completely over with. This year seems like it has been six years long already. And I don't know about you, but I am done with 2020. Since my last video on the George Floyd case, I've gotten a bunch of emails and a bunch of questions I'd like to go over some today. Meanwhile, if you've ever wondered what a Miami family law courtroom looks like, this is it. So this is an actual family law courtroom in Miami where they do all different types of family law, including domestic violence, adoptions, divorces, and the whole nine yards. Okay, let's get over to the Minnesota incident, the George Floyd incident. As you know, the main officer involved has been charged, he's been upcharged from murder in the third degree to murder in the second degree. One of the questions I got is what is the difference between murder in the third degree and murder in the second degree? Well, in Florida, I can tell you that off the top of my head, but in Minnesota, I actually had to look. So let's take a look at what we're dealing with in Minnesota as far as the different types of murders. Let me pull it up here. All right, here we have Minnesota statutes number 609195, murder in the third degree. The th main difference between murder in the third degree and murder in the second degree is the sanctions. For murder in the third degree, it's you're facing 25 years max. Murder in the second degree, you're facing 40 years max. A lot of people ask me, does murder in the second degree mean it's intentional? No, it doesn't, but let's go over the statutes. Murder in the third degree, the applicable subsection is subsection A. Subsection D deals with people dying from the distribution of drugs and stuff. So we'll look at subsection A, which is pertinent to this case. Whoever without, without intent to affect the death of another person causes the death of another person by perpetrating an act imminently dangerous, which is the kneeling on the back of the neck of George Floyd, to others evidencing a depraved mind. A depraved mind is like a ruthless mind, you know, a mind out of, out, of, out of touch with the reality that wants to cause harm. Without regard for human life, is guilty of murder in the third degree under this Minnesota statute and may be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than 25 years. So murder in the third degree in Minnesota does not contain an intent requirement, nor does murder in the second degree. Murder in the second degree is under Minnesota Statute 60919, murder in the second degree. Subsection 1 deals with drive-by shootings exclusively. Um, subsection 2 is our applicable subsection. 
subsection two, paragraph one, deals with drive-by shootings and other felony offenses. Let's, let's start from the beginning. Unintentional murders. Whoever does either of the following is guilty of unintentional murder in the second degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than 40 years, which is a significant increase from the third degree murder. Subsection two, paragraph one. A person who causes death of human being without intent to inflict the death, there's without intent right there, so you don't have to have intent to commit second-degree murder in Minnesota. To affect the death of a person while committing or attempting to commit a felony offense. Now, what I believe they're going to allege the felony offense is, and I very strongly believe, is that it's some type of felony battery or felony assault uh, by the officer who is kneeling on the neck of George Floyd. Other than the sexual conduct, in the first or second degree with force that doesn't, or drive-by shooting, that doesn't deal with what we're dealing with. And sub, subsection two, paragraph two, deals with people under orders of protection, which I guess is a domestic violence injunction since it discusses marriage and all that. So subsection two, paragraph one, is our main cause. And as you can see, there is no intent requirement for the charge of murder in the second degree. Basically, the only difference is murder in the third degree is more negligence-based. This is more felony-based. This requires a felony offense, which if, they're, if, if, the officer, if they determine that the officer is committing the aggravated assault or fel felonious assault or felonious battery, that is the felony offense that would be applicable in this particular statute. Now, the other officers have been charged with aiding and abetting in second-degree murder. So the state has to prove that in some way they aided, forward, you know, gave credence to, assisted in the commission of the second-degree murder. If they are successful in that, those officers could also face up to 40 years under the statute. This statute is very similar to maybe what Florida's felony murder statute is like. Uh, people that are killed in the commission of another felony. So that deals with what the difference is and whether or not the intent is a requirement. The intent is a, not a requirement in either third or second degree murder, and that makes it a lot easier for the state to prove. Also got a question asking, do you think the officers will be convicted, mainly the main officer? Do you think he'll be convicted of this crime? It's too early to tell. The point of arrest to the point of conviction, there's a lot of not only time, but a lot of process, a lot of legal process in between there. And a lot can happen at that time. So you can never judge what will happen at the time of arrest at the time of trial, whether or not they'll be convicted or not. You can't make that determination at the time of arrest because the standard for at the time of arrest is only probable cause, which is a very low standard whereas the standard at trial is beyond a reasonable doubt. Very, very high standard, very different standard, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on there in between. The next question I got is, what is qualified immunity and how does it apply to the police? Okay, qualified immunity is something that the courts made up back in, I think, the 60s, and they really started getting into it in the mid-2000s. There's a lot of case law 
from about 2005 forward dealing with qualified immunity. And qualified immunity protects police officers as well as other government officials when they are doing discretionary activities as opposed to ministerial activities. So when they're using their discretion, they're held to a lower standard. The standard is reasonableness. So to put that in practical terms, qualified immunity applies and a person can't be prosecuted civilly under the qualified immunity if a reasonable, in this case, a reasonable police officer would do the same thing. So if the defense is able to make the argument that a reasonable police officer would have done what this officer did in Minneapolis, that would be, you know, that would be what they would use in their defense. So how do they prove that? How do they prove that a reasonable officer would have done the same thing, therefore the officer should be granted uh, qualified immunity? Usually they bring in experts. They bring, bring in police trainers who train people in use of force and, you know, high liability areas to testify as to whether that was reasonable, that a reasonable officer would do something like that. And if that applies, then they are covered by the qualified immunity. So that takes care of qualified immunity. Somebody else asked, would qualify, would getting rid of qualified immunity, apparently one of the congressmen in the, in the U.S. Congress and the U.S. House has introduced a bill to do away with qualified immunity. Well, qualified immunity is only one part of it in the criminal justice system. Qualified immunity applies to the government officials in their discretionary activities. But there's also a legislative immunity, which covers legislators, and there's judicial immunity that covers judges and magistrates. All three of those different types of immunity come into play in the criminal justice system. So, you know, getting rid of one may not necessarily improve things. You know, if you get rid of one, maybe you should get rid of all of them. I don't know. Um, but getting rid of one is only going to affect one part of the criminal justice system. Because in the criminal justice system, you have the police, the prosecutors, the public defenders, the judges, the magistrates, the appeals courts, um, the Supreme Court, and all the different levels of the judicial branch. You have the executive branch and the judicial branch that come together, and then the other immunity is covered under the legislative branch. So you're only removing the immunity for one part of it. So what would happen if they got rid of qualified immunity? Well, you could sue cops for everything. It would progress through. You could sue them for, you know, whatever, false arrest, excessive force, whatever, and the qualified immunity issue would not even come up. And qualified immunity applies so long as there's not a clear, let me get the exact word on it, so long as there's not a clear violation of federal law or rights involved. So long as their actions, unless it does not apply unless their actions, it does not apply when their actions clearly violated, clearly established federal law or constitutional rights. And what that applies to in the context of police officers is civil rights, 1983 actions. So qualified immunity doesn't come into play if their discretionary actions 
clearly violates federal law or rights. And that's, that's the basis of a 1983 action to begin with. Um, the next question I got is, I got this from somebody who saw me online. I attended the other day, I attended a Zoom, I guess you would call it a conference or a webinar or whatever, that the University of Miami Law School Black Students Organization was having. And they had uh, several professors, the Dean and Congresswoman Shalala on there. And they asked, this person saw me online and recognized me and later DM'd me and asked me, would the qualified immunity resolve the issues at hand that are facing the nation now? I don't think so. I think it would be easier to sue the police and you could maybe get a recovery on it, but qualified immunity doesn't apply, like, we, like I read to you before, where there's a clearly violated federal statute or, or right, and your civil rights are your rights. So qualified immunity, you know, if you, found, if you have been found to, viol to have violated somebody's civil rights under 1983, qualified immunity doesn't even come into play. You don't, you don't get qualified immunity for that. And the cases that we're talking about are the shooting cases and the death cases, which come under the Fourth Amendment under search and seizure. So it's, it definitely implies a violation, of, you know, in this case, clear violation, in the Minnesota case, a clear violation of a federal statute or right at this time based on the charging documents that we know. Now, it may not play out that way when you get to trial. It may be totally different. Like I said, there's a long way between arrest and trial. Another question I got is, how come police unions are so strong? And that's not always the case. I was a, I was a former homicide detective here in Miami, in Miami-Dade County, for a long time. I was a member of the police union there the whole time. And I, you know, I benefited from their services a few times and, you know, it, it definitely helps if you're a police officer. The, what I think you see is the larger police departments, you know, the NYPDs, LAPDs, you know, Miami-Dade PD, Atlanta, you know, the big cities that have the big police departments have stronger unions because they have more members and they pump more union dues into the union. But unions, Police unions are as strong as the local government allows them to be. Um, a lot of people say that policing is not political or shouldn't be political, but in this day and age, and ever since I've been a policeman, it's absolutely political. The police department is run by a police chief or a sheriff. Let's take, let's take the example of a police chief. The police department is run by a police chief who is appointed by a city commission, a city manager, or a mayor, a strong mayor. So they appoint who they want to be police chief that logically should reflect, you know, their representative values in the constituents that elected them. So let's take the NYPD, for example. So de Blasio comes in, Mayor de Blasio comes in, he appoints his um, police commissioner that he wants to run the department the way he wants. And the police commissioner or the police chief in Minneapolis is responsible 
to the mayor or the city manager or the commission, depending upon how this structure is run. So the city government has control, political control over the police department because they could simply remove the chief if the chief is not doing what they want him to do. And there is some tension between the upper command staff and the rank and file members, but it is the chief who sets the agenda for the police department. So remember this in your city, if, you're, if your police department is not performing the way you want them to perform or the way you think they should perform, look back at your city leaders and see if your city leaders, if what they're telling you when they wanna be elected jives with the actions you're doing in appointing the chief and the management of the police department. So as it comes to police unions, well, all, all the disciplinary actions that occur or that are levied against police officers are guided by contracts. So the union negotiates with the city and they reach a contract that includes disciplinary procedures. What type of discipline can be done at whatever level and what is the whole flow of the disciplinary process from the original reporting through the finding of you know, being sustained or unsustained or whatever the final outcome is. That whole process is documented in the contracts. Now, police departments, not all police departments have contracts. Not all, a lot of sheriff's offices don't have, sheriff's departments and offices don't have contracts. And basically, if they don't, it comes under whatever their policies are or, you know, I'm sure in some small departments I've seen, I've represented cops in small departments where it's basically whatever the chief or sheriff wants to do. And you work completely at the convenience of the chief or sheriff. But in these big departments, you know, a lot of them have civil service protections and that contract comes into play in the disciplinary process. So union negotiators sit with city negotiators and they come to an agreement about what that process will be. So I looked at that and tried to apply it to the city of Minneapolis because I was curious, what did the police contract set? Well, this is what the police contract said. It's, so this is the city of Minneapolis's website under labor agreements or human resources website. And this is all the labor agreements that the city of Minneapolis has entered into with their different labor unions. And you go to the Minneapolis Police Officers Federation and you click on that. And here's where you get the agreement period from January 1st, 2017 through December 31st. And when you go to the searchable PDF contract, so here's their labor agreement. And you go down, let's look for management rights, union communications. Okay, so they have civil service there in Minneapolis. Okay, so pages 12 and 13 of Article 12 deal with discipline. So let's go down to that. All right, Article 12, disciplinary procedures, just cause. So the city, the city of Minneapolis Police Department chief has to have just cause to discipline employees who have completed a probationary period. Now, if you're probationary, usually they can fire you for whatever they want. They can just get rid of you. The unit of the measurement for any suspensions may be assessed shall be assessed in hours. Investigations into 
employees' contracts which do not result in the imposition of discipline shall not be entered into the employee's record, personnel file maintained by the police department or the city human resources. And this is, as an attorney, this is information that I use regularly. And a lot of people don't realize that there's, when you have employees in government, there's usually two personnel files the police department personnel file and the city human resources or personnel file. And different information can be in each file and one file can be lacking information and the other file has information. So whenever you request a personnel file, make sure you get it for both. For the purpose of this article, disputed disputes related to personnel file retention and or recognition may be resolved through the procedures set forth in Article 11, Settlement of Disputes. Anytime you get a suspension or a written reprimand, transfer the motion except during the probationary period or discharge, which is termination, who is by a person who has completed the probationary period may appeal through the grievance procedure. So they have a grievance procedure. Anytime discipline under this criteria is issued, the police officer has the right to appeal it to arbitration. And written reprimands, a lot of police departments don't consider written rep reprimands um, discipline. So this goes a step further in protecting the officers by including written reprimands. You can also seek redress through the procedures such as civil service, veterans preference, preference or fair employment. So the Minneapolis police officers have civil service protections except it's provided by Minnesota law. So the contract can't conflict with Minnesota law. Once a grievance or, a or appeal has been properly filed and submitted by the employee or the federation on the employee's behalf, that's where the union's acting on the, on the officer's behalf, through the grievance procedure of this agreement and other available procedures, the employee's right to pursue redress in the alternative form is terminated. So once the officer agrees to go through this appeals process, he can't use, he or she cannot use redress through the civil service, the veterans preference, or the fair employment aspects of it. And this goes on to discuss how they carry out the disciplinary procedures. As far as formal statements, discipline rights in the bargaining unit, and then it goes into wages. So it's a pretty short two-page description here. So in summary, to discipline an officer, to fire, suspend, transfer, demote, or reprimand, the city has to have, the chief of police has to have just cause. And then once the the, after the investigation. And then once the chief of police has determined that he has just cause, then the employee gets to appeal through any of these procedures, but the major one here is through arbitration. And it's been my experience representing police officers in use of force issues in Florida that arbitrators usually side with the police officers. So that discusses how in the city of Minneapolis officers are disciplined and what rights they have when they are disciplined. So what you'll probably see in, you know, based on my experience is the officers who were charged in the case, they will wait, you know, they've been fired already. So they come under the disciplinary procedures because the chief of police is obviously determined that he has just cause to fire them. Now 
They didn't go through the whole process. They went through an abbreviated process because the whole disciplinary process takes a lot more time. So they probably went through an abbreviated process to determine if he has just cause and he terminated. So they get to go through the appeals process. They will probably smartly wait until the criminal process is done with. And if they are successful in the criminal process, then they will go through the grievance process and they will go to an arbitrator and they will have like a trial before the arbitrator and you know the police union or the police officer's attorneys will present their case and then the city will present their case and then the arbitrator will make findings and recommendations. The arbitrator can uphold the city's position or they can overturn the city's position in which case the city has to reinstate the officer. Um, whether that happens in this case, I don't know. That's a long way. You know, arrest to conviction is a long way, but arrest to reinstatement is even a further away. I would say that process is going to take maybe years. I don't know, a very long time. Those were the main questions that I received since I broke out that last video on George Floyd's case. Here in Miami, I mean, we have, we have some protests that occurred for a couple days. They were fairly peaceful. Um, you know, I've been through riots myself. I, I missed the McDuffie riots by a couple years, but when I came on, we had the Lozano riots and the Alvarez riots, and then a couple small ones in between. And it's always been my experience that, you know, the cops are all for going out and protesting. And, you know, we don't have a problem with protesting. Cops protest all the time, especially Miami Beach cops. Every time they have a contract dispute, they're out protesting. So cops don't have a problem with protesting. Um, you know, protest all you want. You know, a lot of people out there are probably off-duty cops out protesting with you for whatever cause. Protest whatever cause you want. And, you know, I think cops in general support that. What they don't support is what happens when the protesters go home. And they had a little squabble at the city of Miami. After the protesters went home, the, uh, you know, the looters and, you know, the people that want to wreak havoc on the community came out and, they had about a 30 minute dust up at the city of Miami police department. And you know, that ended that the city of Miami came out and took care of business. The County went over there with the field force and took care of business and ended that. And they really haven't had any problem since any major problem since we're still under a curfew, which has been adjusted. It started out at 8 PM, but now has been adjusted. I understand to midnight to 6 AM. So we're still under an emergency order curfew because of the civil unrest but it doesn't, at least from what I've seen, it doesn't appear that Miami is going to experience anything remotely similar to the rest of what the rest of the country is uh, experiencing, unless I'm completely uninformed. And, you know, that may be the case. I doubt that's the case, but that may be the case. All right, the next question I got, and another good question I got, and I've never really been asked this question before, is who are, who are the cops? Where are cops hired from? I, I, can, I can tell you what it's like when I was, I was hired in 1987, I was 20 years old. And what I found is from working in the police department is cops are like you and me, they come from everywhere. I mean, we had cops that were, you know, 19, 20, in Florida, you only have to be 19 to be an officer. You don't have to have any college education. Um, 
they were 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds, you know, just out of high school, maybe did a little bit of college and, you know, got a job in law enforcement. A lot of uh, former military. Um, when I came on, they had uh, one of the big employers here in Miami, Eastern Airlines, had gone bankrupt and shut down. So we got a bunch of stewardesses from Eastern Airlines that came over to be cops. Uh, a lot of college kids after graduation or during college um, applied and became cops. Um, a few of them were cops from other states, but you know, we had, I remember having a few NYPD guys, an LAPD guy, and a couple others from you know, other states, but not, not too many. Um, more from other departments in the state of Florida and in Miami-Dade County in particular that were lateral over to be you know, county cops with us. But they're, you know, they were pretty much you know, just people, people from your neighborhood. I had it a little bit different, you know, the times used to be, you know, back in the 20s and 30s, I guess, 40s maybe, that policemen lived in the neighborhoods where they were policemen at. That's no longer the case. But when I came on, um, I did a couple years in another neighborhood, and then I got transferred back to the neighborhood I actually lived in. So I got to be a policeman in my neighborhood that I had grown up in for a couple years before being transferred out again. And it was, it was very interesting because I would run into people all the time that I went to high school with and middle school with and grew up with. So it was a different experience, but that's, that's very rare nowadays. Um, what type of training do cops have? That's another question that was asked. Um, you know, you go to the police academy. When I went, it was nine months. Now I think it's down to five months. You go to five months of training, and I'll tell you, it's out on the road under the supervision of a field training officer for, I think it was six weeks, and then I was out on my own. So I was out 20 years old, not a clue in the world, running around with a gun with the authority to take, you know, to use deadly force, the authority to enforce the laws of the state of Florida. It was an ominous responsibility. And, you know, I'm proud that I executed it well. Most of the people, actually all the people that I know executed it well. Most of them are retired now or retiring. Um, but that's it. That's where cops come from. Cops come from, you know, your community. It's you and me. It just happens to be that, you know, some of us wear brown or blue and then the other people wear just shirts and ties or t-shirts and, you know, shorts and flip-flops. Anybody, anybody who wants to be a cop can be a cop from the community as long as you meet some fairly, you know, fairly loose guidelines. You know, in Florida, it's 19 years old, college education, GED, or graduate, no felony convictions, uh, no criminal history, no serious traffic history, certainly no arrests. Although I think they relaxed the standards on that some, but that's that's about it. As long as you have a you know a clean background, you have a good credit report. You can apply to be a policeman. Uh, so that's about it. That's about questions. All the questions I got to. I have a bunch more in the email that I had in the email and DMs that I haven't got to, and I'll try to get to those as soon as possible and maybe do up another video. But that's it for now. If you have any questions or comments, please DM me or comment below. Or feel free to free, feel free. Uh, my getting tongue tied. Feel free to email me at patrick at pjmlawyer.com. Also, if you have any, any counterpoints, I'm always willing to listen to counterpoints. Please let me know. 
Um, different people have different opinions and different perspectives. I, can't, I can only tell you my opinion and my perspective. Yours may be different. If it is, let me know. You know, we'll see, we'll see how they jive or they don't jive and maybe work it out, maybe solve the world's problems. But anyway, that's it for today. Thank you for taking the time. I'm always humbled that you take the time to join me to listen to what I have to say. Hopefully, I provide some useful information. If I do, please like and subscribe. And if you hit that little bell, it'll notify you when I put up a new video. I try to do videos every Wednesday at 6 p.m., but sometimes, as you can see, the internet and the environment do not cooperate, and I am not able to get those videos up. I usually do a live stream and then upload and edit the, the live stream and put in all the comments and stuff like that. So you can usually catch me Wednesdays at six, but lately it's been delayed because of my crappy internet connection or the power outages or the storms that we're having here in South Florida. So please look for me next Wednesday. Occasionally I'll get on on Monday and Tuesday and do a weekly update if there's any important updates coming along. And then every now and then I'll throw in between, I'll throw in a video on a random topic where somebody asks me a question or something important comes up. But thank you. Overall, thank you just for joining me and participating in this little experiment on YouTube and the other social media platforms. Have a good evening. Stay safe. Uh, we're all in this together. We'll all make it out together, and you know we'll be we'll be fine in the end. Regardless of what happens, we'll all be fine. Thank you, and I'll see you next week.